Hi, I'm Lon Schiffbauer. Hey, in our last reading, Democracy, Science, and Industrialism by Woods, Watt, and Anderson, we were introduced to the theory of laissez-faire, the idea that the economy is a natural system that enables the greatest possible good for everyone involved, provided it's allowed to function without interference. Now, that particular reading focused primarily on how the theory of laissez-faire applies to mill owners, you know, the, the employers, and the effects this has on labor, the employees. This reading, The Industrial and Social History of England by Edward Chani, speaks of this as well, but it goes into a little more depth regarding how laissez-faire might be applied to the working class. First, let's remind ourselves why this question is germane in the first place. It all goes back to what Woods, Watt, and Anderson called the naughtiest and most vexing of problems. This was the relationship between capital and labor. With the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, landowners realized they could build some pretty massive mills near a power source, thereby better controlling the manufacturing process and realizing economies of scale. As Chani put it, spinning jinnies could be used in household, uh, in the household of the weaver, but the later spinning machines were so large and cumbrous that they could not be used in a dwelling house and required so much power and rapidity of motion that human strength was scarcely available. Horsepower was used to some extent, but water power was soon applied and special buildings came to be put up along streams where water power was available. This meant that huge numbers of laborers would be needed to operate the machinery. According to Chani, and it's probably Chinny, by the way, but I don't know, Chaney. Probably Chaney. Anyway, the new industry required bodies of laborers working regular hours under the control of their employers and in buildings where the machines were placed and power provided. Now, that's all very well and good, but this raised the question, how is a mill owner going to get people to work for him? After all, it's not a great job, the hours are long, the labor is hard, and the work was, well, it was inconsistent, and the pay, well, the pay might have been okay, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Still, the point is that it wasn't a job that girls dreamed of doing from day one, so if workers are free to do whatever they want for a living, and there's no institution in place whereby labor could be compelled from someone, such as tradition or force, what will motivate people to do the less desirable jobs? As Cheney put it, if there is no external control, what incentive would actuate men in their industrial existence? What force would hold economic society together? The answer, Cheney claimed, was a plain one. Enlightened self-interest was the incentive. Universal free competition was the force. Cheney went on to explain that a natural and sufficient economic force was always tending to act and produce the best results, except in as far as it was interfered with by external regulation. If a man wishes to earn wages, to receive payment, he must observe what work another man wants done, or what goods another man desires, and offer to do that work or furnish those goods so that the other man may be willing to remunerate him. That means pay him. 
In this way, both obtain what they want, and if the others are similarly occupied, all wants will be satisfied so far as practicable. For this to work, though, Cheney was clear that there should be no, or as little, government interference as possible. As he put it, men must be entirely free to act as they think best, to choose what and when and how they will produce. The best results will be obtained where the greatest freedom exists, where men may compete with one another freed from all trammels, at liberty to pay or ask such wages, to demand or offer such prices, to accept or reject such goods as they wish or can agree upon. If everyone else is equally free, the man who offers the best to his neighbor will be preferred. Effort will thus be stimulated, self-reliance encouraged, production increased, improvement attained, and economy guaranteed. Cheney went on to say that government should not try to coax the economy in one direction or another. Rather, government should allow capital and resources to freely flow to where there was the greatest need and opportunity. As he put it, nor should there be any special favor or encouragement given by government or by any other bodies to any special individuals or classes of persons or kinds of industry. For in this way, capital and labor will be diverted from the direction which they will naturally take, and the self-reliance and energy of such favored persons diminished. The effects of all this, Cheney claimed, would be economic growth, innovation, efficiency, and continuous improvement. Remember, he said, effort will be thus stimulated, self-reliance encouraged, production increased, improvement attained, and economy guaranteed. All of this reinforces the idea of laissez-faire, this time from the perspective of the worker. No longer would people be forced to work in a given occupation because of their family lineage, status in some hierarchical system, or by compulsion. Now everyone could choose for themselves. As Cheney put it, thus the structure of regulation of industry which had been built up in the 16th and 17th centuries, or which had survived from the Middle Ages, was now torn down. The use of powers of government to make men carry on their economic life in a certain way, to buy and sell, labor and hire, manufacture and cultivate, export and import, only in such ways as were thought to be best for the nation, seemed to be entirely abandoned. The laissez-faire view of government was, to all appearances, becoming entirely dominant. So yay, right? Freedom for everyone to choose their own way, to forge their own journey through life. Well, maybe on paper. Truth is, we're only as free as our resources allow us to be. And so for somebody who has no money, no skills, save for a few, no mobility, and no access to resources, opportunities were few and far between. Furthermore, while it is true that people could now negotiate wages and make money, perhaps more than they had as, say, an independent farmer, that doesn't necessarily mean an increase in the standard of living. As Cheney put it, even among those who were supposed to have reaped the advantages of the changes of the time, many unpleasant phenomena appeared. 
The farm laborers were not worse, perhaps were better off on the average in the matter of wages than those of the previous generation, but they were more completely separated from the land than they had ever been before, more completely deprived of those wholesome influences which came from the use of even a small portion of land, and to the incitement to thrift that came from the possibility of rising. Few classes of people have ever been more utterly without enjoyment or prospects than the modern English farm laborers. In other words, increased money doesn't necessarily make up for a feeling of emptiness one might feel by losing their entrepreneurial independence and a sense of connection to the community. So there you are. I hope you found this helpful. Good luck on the homework, and we'll catch you next time.